0: Welcome back to IGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor She.
1: And I'm Jill Weinbanks. And for all of you who have been watching this show, you know that I am the person who wears hashtag Jill's Pins. And today's pin is really big so I know you'll be able to see it and it celebrates gay pride and the LGBTQIA plus community.
0: Yes, uh, language and words matter, especially when it comes to how we talk about marginalized and underserved communities. Given all of the ways that the LGBTQIA plus community has been attacked and is attacked right now, especially in Republican states, Jill and I are joined by a guest who will help us better understand how we can understand and talk about the LGBTQIA plus community in the best way possible by using the right words and language.
1: Yeah, words really matter, and to help us do the right thing using the right words. We are joined today by Randy Etner, a clinical psychologist known for her work with the transgender community. Randy is the founder of New Health Foundation and has helped um, pass anti-discrimination laws to help the LGBTQIA plus community. And I hope that there's some other way to refer to the community than all those letters and has provided testimony on behalf of trans people seeking workplace rights. We are grateful, Randy, to have you join us today and we look forward to the conversation.
2: Well, I'm delighted to be here and to be able to talk about this most misunderstood area of human behavior.
0: So, I mean, on that note, we, I mean, we want to dive into these terms. And as Jill was saying, I mean, there are so many different terms um, and I guess phrases um, in the LGBTQIA community. But you know, first, I guess we've been saying LGBTQIA is that the most inclusive overall term based off of your experience?
2: Well, it certainly is a lot of letters. <laughs> and I imagine that we could even add more if we thought about it. But I think that you know basically we're talking we know what we're talking about when you use those letters we're talking about a community that's been targeted that has been discriminated against a small minority and these laws that are now being passed are making it so difficult for people to live everyday lives safely and comfortably with it seems the intent of just erasing this transgender population altogether from society. So what is a what does the term transgender mean? It's really an umbrella term that covers a scope of people. And language and words are important. And you know, I don't know that we're covering every single identity when we use those letters, but we are certainly capturing people who are intending to express themselves in their own unique way. So
1: what I want to focus on, and I do want to get to um, your psychological uh, expertise as well and talk about that aspect of it, but I think we have to define things before we can talk about the psychological aspects of this. And you've just referred to the T letter in the LGBTQIA+, which is transgender. Um, but, and Victor and I spent a lot of time talking about how we would phrase questions because we both really want to know and be educated. We want to be allies. Um, and we- the questions that we were getting um, because all of the words mean. And I, so I want to start because I'm just assuming this is an intergenerational audience. There are many people listening who are Victor's age, and then there are people my age. And I am sure that there are many, particularly at my end of the spectrum, who don't know. So let's just go through the list. Um, and when you say there are other letters that could be added, I would like to know, you know, again, what those are to me, L means lesbian. B means bi. G means LBG gay. Q is queer. Um, LGBTQI. Okay. So I'm not even sure is I intersex or what is the I? Intersex. Okay. I, A. What
2: is A? Well, that depends on who you ask. Okay. Give me some options here. (laughs) A could be asexual. And
1: what does asexual mean?
2: It's an individual who is not engaging or interested in having intimate relationships with another person. Okay, and so the
1: plus stands for all the other possibilities. But before we get to what the plus is, maybe you can explain the difference between gender, gender identity, sexual identity, sexual preference. If, if you could address that, I sure. want to make sure we're using it correctly.
2: Right. So Jill, everyone has a gender identity. We have a sense of belonging to a group, typically female or male, or another category, and it is a deeply felt internal sense that everyone has. For some people, that gender identity, that sense of who we are, doesn't match the sex they're assigned at birth. So at birth, The physician gives a cursory look at the genitals and writes F or M on the birth certificate. And for the majority of people, that F or M is aligned with how they view themselves. But for some people, there's an incongruity. And for those people, the incongruity between their gender identity, their view of themselves and that sex they're assigned at birth can be extremely distressing and that is called the umbrella term of transgender. When there is that incongruity, sexual orientation is who we're attracted to and transgender people can be attracted to just like non-transgender people They can be attracted to males, females or other people or any gender that they find attractive. So sexual orientation and gender are different constructs. They really are. Is is gender
1: heavily related to what in my day I would have called the stereotypes Um, You know, a woman is more compassionate. A man is stronger, which I consider to be stereotypes, not based on individual uh, circumstances. Is that what gender is?
2: Well, that's what gender role is. And that's very culturally based. So do you remember years ago this idea that there was a Mr. Mom, the man who stayed home while the wife worked? Remember that? Yeah. So we would have said that he was perhaps acting as a woman would typically act, but his gender was male. It didn't change his gender. Right. Mm-hmm. So, gender presentation is how we display our gender, gender role is the activities or the performances that are typical in a given society or culture. And they are, there are stereotypes, as you say, absolutely.
0: Um, so I'm wondering, so when we talk about things like LGBTQIA+, and all the different phrases and terms out there, is it the community or the medical profession? Like, who decides on what the terminology should be and is?
2: Well, I think it's the community, and I think the language is evolving constantly. Yeah. I mean, it's just... Probably changed last night while we were sleeping. I mean, if you look on the internet,
0: yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. You know,
2: gender awesome. And, you know, we talk about gender non conforming, gender queer, gender fluid. People have an individual way of expressing their identity. Right, right. And really, identity is so central to personality. This is not a trivial, identity is not trivial. I wanted to share with you an interesting research project. Here in Chicago, someone studied patients who had end-stage Alzheimer's. They lost all their cognitive abilities. They didn't recognize their relatives. They were really at the end of their illness. And yet, when the nurses talked to them as though they were children or used baby talk, They got very agitated, why? Because they retained the identity of an adult. They retained their sense of identity as adults. Nothing outpaces identity, nothing outlives it. Identity is really a very central aspect of who we are as human beings. And so, That, I guess, raises the
1: question of how do people decide who are assigned male or female at birth? And as of this time, those are the only two genders that are identified on a birth certificate. Um, And it's based, as you said, based on what genitalia the doctor observes or the nurse or whoever fills out the form. How do people then say, no, I feel like something different, I'm not comfortable in this skin.
2: Well, that's exactly the feeling that some people have. And some people have that very early on. So we hear of children who feel as though, you know, they call me son, but I feel more like daughter. You know, who really will, even before they can express that idea, they have a sense that something is not right. They don't feel like their peers. Now, for some people, that occurs later in life. For instance, remember when people heard about Christine Jorgensen?
1: Yes, I do. Uh, Victor, do you know who that is? I don't, know. <laughs> what, well, Why? That, do you, go, go, go ahead, Randy.
2: <laughs> well, that was the first person who in the 50s, I think it was the late 50s, She had been a GI. She had been in the army. And she came as a man. She was born male, enlisted, or was drafted as a man. And became a woman, having had some of her surgery in um, Europe, in Denmark, actually. And for people who saw that, for some people, it was like a lightning bolt. They were like oh my god now i understand why i have felt this way my entire life so she was really the first person to publicly transition and to bring this awareness to to the public but this is not a phenomenon that started with her i mean this has been this has gone on throughout history Ovid, who was a first century poet, talked Mm -hmm. in prose about the stuff from a pregnant mare. Premarin is a drug today. It's an estrogen compound. And it's made from the urine of pregnant mares. And Joan of Arc was a trans man, burned at the stake in part because she wore male clothing. Oh. So this isn't a really news, uh, yes. <laughs> wow. Boy,
1: I didn't know that. So, Joan of Arc, I of course I always saw picture her dressed in female clothing and being burned at the stake in female clothing. But
2: well, according to that. some history books, there is uh, there is verbiage that says that you have insisted on wearing. The robes, the clothing of the men, and on and on, indicating that in fact she had this condition of gender incongruity. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Well, she certainly behaved in a gender, in at least by society standards, because of her um, her fighting and her standing up for what she thought was right. So that would have not been the role assigned to. Females at the time, um, which,
2: so at the very I mean, least, she was gender nonconforming.
1: Yes, but, right. but that goes on. I mean, I'm gender nonconforming. When I went to law school, only four percent of all lawyers were women. So all of us were gender nonconforming and faced those issues. But um, and that certainly has improved as of today um, in terms of the acceptance. Um, Victor did some research. Why don't you ask about this, Victor? I thought this was very interesting.
0: Well, yeah. So, I mean, speaking of all the terms and phrases, I mean, I read about this one acronym, S-O-G-I-E-S-C, which stands for Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity, and Expression, and Sex Characteristics. Can you define what some of those mean for our audience? Um, And would you say that all are socially constructed, or is there some sort of biological or physical explanation for for all of those?
2: Well, there appears to be a um, neurodevelopmental basis for gender dysphoria. So let me define gender dysphoria. That is the most extreme or the most severe form of the gender incongruity that we've been talking about. So when a person, feels that this disconnect be, between their gender identity and this body that they've been born into is so distressing to them that they simply cannot, they can't manage. They develop anxiety. They develop depression. They may isolate. Some may attempt suicide. That is, is a medical condition and those people will require medical treatment often hormones and some will require surgery so researchers have looked at many different brain aspects of the brain to try to determine what gives rise to this and they've actually seen differences in the brain because with functional magnetic resonance imagery, you know, all of this new technology that we have, we can look at people's brains. And researchers have looked at these brains and they have seen differences in certain areas of the brain. And we also know, if from twin studies, that twins, even those who've been raised apart, have a higher concordance of gender incongruity. And a sibling is five times more likely, a sibling who has gender incongruity, gender dysphoria is five times more likely to have another sibling who also has gender incongruity than in the general population. So there seems to be a neurodevelopmental or a biological basis to the condition, which is important because it means that it's not a lifestyle choice. It's not a phase that people can be talked out of. You know, psychotherapy is not going to change someone's gender. And so if you think of this as something that a person is born with, then it becomes a condition, a medical condition that fortunately is treatable. That's so interesting. And
1: that, do you think that that research will become uh, more widely known and be grounds for the arguments against the, uh, for example, gender medical treatment, which is being barred in states now? Um, particularly for those who are under a certain age. Do you think that if this research were more widely known, that legislators might step back from that and say, ooh, this is a medical condition that needs to be treated? And um, uh, that could help. I mean, I have friends who have trans children, and one of them was extremely... um, Unhappy and depressed, and um, since transitioning, has become much happier, and that, which makes sense with what you're saying. Um, so, talk a little bit more about this medical study.
2: Well, Joe, I've been a um, an expert witness in many cases, and this is what we always present: this evidence and. Many of these cases are cases where people are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And as you know, the Eighth Amendment prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, which the courts have interpreted to mean withholding necessary medical treatment. And so on that basis, we have gotten care for people who've been incarcerated. And it's based on that research and there is an assemblage of that research. that research is growing, although in these, these red states that are now fighting yeah. access to care, um, they you know they debate that of course, or they deny that. And um, we have unfortunately now, as you know, politicians who are making medical decisions you know? and not just in this area, but I mean, we saw it with COVID yeah. and with reproductive rights. And now we see it with denying care, gender affirming care to transgender people, to people who require it.
1: In states that are still open, um, what advice would you have for parents? Because I've, I've read some about that if you go through um, the hormone treatments, pre-puberty, puberty puberty blockers, that the transition is more likely to be successful, um, that if you wait too long, there are complications. So what advice would you give to parents as to, number one, obviously, if you could do a a brain scan and say, your child is, got all the um, brain symptoms of someone who is gender dysphoric and needs hormonal treatment. That would be maybe an easier thing. But until that's proven and widely available, how do you help a parent say, yes, my child is truly ready for this
2: life-altering treatment? Well, first of all, Joe, we don't do any surgery or irreversible treatments. No treatments for children, but the laws are now fighting treatments for, you know, young people, not children, but young people.
1: What is the definition of children and young people?
2: Well, you know, prepubertal children are, in many cases, in need of these um, puberty blockers. And what happens in those cases and what must happen is a very thorough assessment by a multidisciplinary team of people who have expertise in working with youngsters. So while politicians are saying that this is experimental and damaging, I'm gonna quote Scientific American, which says that these treatments, to consider these treatments experimental is cruel and unscientific, but Youngsters do need counseling. They do need, and parents do need to be involved and certain and supportive, and to know that this is, um, that any kind of intervention is appropriate and is appropriate for their child. And so, this is why this is something that is very thoroughly considered in a multidisciplinary setting. And under those circumstances, the results can be excellent. And to deny their treatment, parents are going to have to leave the state and providers are going to have to leave the state because some states, as you know, will make it a felony, the provision of that care. Yeah, I I was thinking
1: more in terms of the parent, assuming you're in a state that allows gender affirming care, how a parent makes that decision and at what age is the best age um, to make that decision? Are you better off doing it? Um, I have talked to people who say that at almost, as soon as the child could talk, they knew that they didn't like being whatever gender they were assigned. Um, And so at what age do you start saying you are capable of making that decision or of knowing the consequences
2: of that decision? Well, like all of medicine, this is on a case-by-case basis. And you know, some children are mature earlier than other children. And some minors are very mature and are capable of giving informed consent or participating in healthcare decisions. But I think it's really a case-by-case basis. But typically, children who know very early on have the most enduring and most long-standing gender dysphoria, and those are the children that most likely will end up receiving treatment. The parents are aware of it at an early age and it, it's just intractable in some children. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's what you've seen in your friends' children.
1: Yeah. Well, one, I think most of my friends' children have transitioned at a later stage, um, college or, or later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have read about children who knew... Um, uh, I, I read a review of Elliot Page's book, and we are hoping to have Elliot as a guest on the show, um, and he claims that he knew very early in his life, um, and so it'll be very interesting to to speak with him. Um, um, it's. I want to go back to, if I can, unless Victor has a question, I, I want to go back to the language thing, because it just was occurring to me that LGBTQIA mostly refers to sexual orientation. Is that correct? I mean, lesbian is, I believe, defined as a woman who is interested in sex with a woman. Gay would be a man who's interested in a, a male sexual partner, um, bi, like spoke, as opposed to being gender descriptive. Um, Is is that correct? And do we need something that defines gender descriptions?
2: Well, I think you're right. And I think part of the reason that transgender people have been targeted is because unlike the gay, lesbian, bi community, oftentimes they're visible. We don't always know what a person's sexual orientation is, but... People who require medical treatments or who transition and want legal recognition are become visible, and that's why they are so, um, in a way, vulnerable mm-hmm. because they require something that the other members of this group that you've mentioned this. Don't require so people who are gay or lesbian don't require treatments to help them transition or changes in their um, doc- identity documents and so even though some of these laws will affect them they are not as vulnerable as the transgender population which is terribly discriminated against and. Um, really subjected to enormous stigma. In, in 2008, a survey showed that transgender individuals were four times as likely to be living in extreme poverty, twice as likely to be unemployed, twice mm-hmm. as likely to be homeless, as you know, in compared to non-transgender people, or what we would call cisgender people. And forty-one to forty-three percent report having attempted suicide at least one time. So this is a very um, a very vulnerable population.
1: So I, I I want to come back to that, but I think Victor has he has to go to do a work assignment, and he wanted to get in one more question before he left, and then I'll ask you more about the the sexual identity gender
0: role. Well, I want to ask you about something that Jill and I often talk about, which is pronouns and kind of what pronouns we should be using when describing um, transgender people, or um, I guess just different cases um, in the LGBTQ plus community. Can you talk about the, the pronoun usage and and specifically, maybe any alternative to there. Um, Jill and I, we were talking last night. I mean, sometimes we find that there is confusing, especially if it's referring to a single person. So like if they are coming for dinner and then you ask, you know, how many plates do I set? But it's really referring to a single person. Can you talk more about kind of that? Um, and, and if there's a solution to, or another word that can describe there? Well,
2: they, them is a very, commonly used, commonly used pronouns by people who consider themselves Mm non-binary. And they're a smaller group of people than the transgender population at large. And those people don't perceive themselves as being either really male or female. It's somewhere other than... The binary, they reject the binary of male and female. And, you know, language and law is very binary, but humanity is not. Right. As someone once said, nature loves diversity, but society hates it. <laughs> and it's true, isn't it?
0: That is, yeah.
2: So people who use these pronouns, and we have to ask people what their pronouns are, we don't, can't automatically determine that, often we'll use they, them, and I think it can be confusing, and it can be something that many people aren't used to, but it is something that I think we have to be respectful of, and um, I don't know that there is a solution per se, but I've read that some people are Using Are saying that rather than the plural them, like I'm inviting them to dinner, they will use the person's name. So it will be so-and-so is joining us for dinner. Right. To make it clear that we're talking about one individual and not a plural. I know it's... It's confused. It it,
1: yeah. it happened to me recently, where um, my grand goddaughter was referring to one of her roommates, but I had, by the term they, and so I thought she was referring to all of her roommates, oh. and yeah. It, yeah. it was just to one of them. Um, yeah. And using the name would have helped. Um, that that is a good solution. Um, uh, for for those things so that i think both sides have to be open to this i'm certainly open to it it was just i was thrown off by um when i found out that they was only one person right so so all right victor you have to go and no, we'll Randy, just con- you so much for continue this. for a little more and uh, Hi, victor. so back to the the um, gender versus sexual orientation so a trans Man could either be a former lesbian who remains interested in female sexual intimacy or could continue to be interested in males. Is that correct or not correct? Um, How how often does that happen,
2: one way or the other? That's correct. That transgender people, just like non transgender people, can be attracted to. Females or males or both, and um, and that is independent of their gender identity. Mm-hmm. So a trans man could be attracted to women, and many trans men are and marry and when possible. And or they could be gay, meaning they're attracted to men because they are men.
1: So let me ask you another question, which is in terms of language, I've tried to be inclusive. So in referring to the abortion debate, I speak of people who could become pregnant because that could include a trans man who still has ovaries. Um, And there has been some pushback that that's ridiculous and some praise for being inclusive. What does the community in general, if you know, um, you know, or or do your clients feel about inclusivity in that regards?
2: Well, that's an interesting question because I think that every person is different. Every client I see is different. And so I don't really want to speak on behalf of the community, but I think that, um, You know, certainly people who do have a uterus and ovaries can become pregnant. And it would involve going off um, testosterone Mm. and for a period of time. And um, that we know that has happened and does happen. And um, I imagine that there are people that would really be very delighted and just be thrilled that you would actually be respectful enough and enlightened enough to understand that a person who has transitioned could have a child, and that transgender people, like all people, some people very vehemently do want to have children. And that's you know a hope that many people harbor transgender people too.
1: Okay. So also in terms of helping me to understand, what is the difference between non-binary
2: and um, um, gender fluid? So a person who identifies as non-binary would be someone who says, you know, I don't really feel... uh, totally female. I don't really identify as a woman, nor do I identify as a man. I'm just who I am. I'm just my own. I'm, you know, as unique as a fingerprint. That's my identity. And someone who's gender fluid is someone who feels that they can actually move from one gender to another Mm -hmm at different times. Um, sometimes they feel very female, or so I've been told. And sometimes they feel masculine. But they seem to express the feeling that their gender is fluid and not consolidated as male or typically female. And I do think, Jill, that that only really refers to a very small group of people. I don't think a lot of people would identify as gender fluid, but there are certainly some that there,
1: yeah. do. I have friends with a gender fluid child, so it, it doesn't. and Okay, also on words, is there a difference between woman, female, male, man, or do they have the same meaning and connotation?
2: Well, one is a noun and one is uh, an adjective or an adverb, right? Well, I don't
1: know. I am a man. I am a woman. I am a female. I am a male. Um, Well, Male seems like gender to me. Woman, I don't know. I mean, I just don't know. Maybe they're the same thing.
2: Well, man and women only refer to human beings, whereas female and masculine can refer to... To mammals, so we can say a female cat, but we would never describe a cat as a woman. Yeah, that's true. Okay, all right. And um, someone has female sex characteristics, or uh, you know, has a um, a feminine presentation, mm -hmm. but um, man and woman are, are only referred to human beings.
1: Okay. And are there any insights that you could share about how a person knows that he or she wants to transition um, or to identify differently than as a binary male, female?
2: How does one know? Yeah. Well, I would say that some people who grow up in resource poor families, and this is something I've seen in the prisons because I do a lot of work in, in the prisons as an as an testifying as an expert. Some people who get into prison have never been exposed to even anyone who's been gay or transgender. Uh, maybe they had a very you know impoverished home life or they were, had a very strict religious upbringing where those subjects were never mentioned. And then when they're in prison, they suddenly learn about these different aspects of life, and they realize, oh, well, that's how I felt my whole life. Mm-hmm. That's the pain that's been dogging me all along, but I didn't know there was a name for it. I thought I was just weird or damaged. And, you know, when I first started working in this field, some people would come as patients, and I was the only person they had ever told. There was so much shame about this. There was so much guilt. And it was just, you know, sometimes they, they couldn't even bring themselves to disclose it. A professional because it was it was what did I do wrong why even the people who have the condition often don't understand it and so they're very um, you know now with the internet and with social media and with resources people are finding that oh there's doctors that can help me with this I never knew that before Right, so the but, internet really brought in a complete tectonic shift, shift in this field. Although I would
1: say it also has created um, a lot of hatred, and that's expressed openly. Yes. Um, the the kinds and has led to. Uh, many states passing laws that are hateful um, and and terrible. The attacks on the trans community particularly, but the, just the entire um, LGBTQIA plus community uh, have been subjected to terrible new laws, um, terrible discrimination. And so it, there is some good with it. But, you know, I, I have to say I've never thought about the uh, community in, prison where let's stick with just trans for now where would a trans man be housed in a female facility or in a male facility
2: female facility
1: female and how dangerous would that be and vice versa for a trans woman how a trans woman then would be housed with a male facility
2: very Very dangerous
1: dangerous. there Hanfield. So what protections are they offered?
2: Very few. Very little we know that the sexual abuse, the uh, you know, the horrific just the horrific treatment in mm. in prisons is it, it, you know, it's really can be just a, a not just from other prisoners but even from correctional staff. Yeah. yeah it's just um, it can be just absolutely absolute hell people are housed based on their genitals Mm. and even people who have transitioned and have had partial surgeries if they have male genitals or female genitals they are housed based on those genitals typically Mm. Um, it's Prison is a very, just a a dreadful experience for people who are transgender and particularly people who require health care. Access to health care can be excruciatingly difficult.
1: Is that true outside of prison as well, that trans people have uh, difficulty getting medical help?
2: Well, you know, one study said that 26% will postpone care because they're fear of discrimination. Um, they're less likely to go for preventative screening kinds of treatment. They experience discrimination in physicians' offices. And now we see that some of these states are proposing laws that would ban gender-affirming care Even for people up to the age of 26, who are not minors, but but adults. Yeah, and that uh, Idaho is proposing a lifetime imprisonment for providers who give care to youth. Oh, my goodness. So these laws are so harsh that providers, parents, patients, you actually have to leave the state. Um, it's it's really it's in the there have been 500 laws anti-transgender laws just this year that have been proposed in 49 states, and that's more than in the past five years combined. 77 have already passed into law; they've been passed. So this is really um, just a very cruel um, political strategy to really scapegoat this population.
1: Well, this has been very informative, and I hope that the medical research gets publicized more because I think when people see it as a physiological, biological, component as something that is immutable, uh, that it may help with acceptance. And that would be a good thing. Um, Are there any questions I didn't ask? I hate asking a question like this, because I know I hate getting it. But have I missed anything that you think our audience should know? Any misconceptions or terms that they should know? Or are there terms that they should avoid? I mean, queer, for example, is a word I would have never used. I would—I mean, it, it would have been horrible. But now it's one of the th- words that the community has embraced as representative of certain elements. Mm-hmm. So I, I just, again, it's, you know, are there words I shouldn't use? Are there words I should use? Are there any, uh, any other information besides this amazing medical um, information that I should know? Well,
2: we've abandoned the word transsexual. Because, unfortunately, that conflated sex and gender. And we've abandoned the term sex reassignment surgery or sex change. And we have instead gone to gender affirming care and gender affirming surgeries. Because we're not really reassigning people's sex. Right. I think that... um, What's important is just to understand that people are born with a gender identity and that it's not something that they adopted as a lifestyle choice and that in certain cases, in the case of severe gender incongruity, it's actually a medical condition Mm -hmm. and it requires treatment and therefore we should give the same health care to people who have this condition as people who have diabetes. And we don't.
1: Well, thank you for joining us today. It has been a great education for me and I know it was for Victor. I'm sorry he had to leave early, but um, we'll have to continue this conversation because I'm sure that if our audience has any questions, they will send them to us and maybe you will be willing to help us answer those questions in a medically sound, psychologically professional way. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. And I would be
2: delighted to do that. Thank you, Jill. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.